Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. This is part two of our rewriting the Star Wars prequel trilogy series. If you haven't heard episode one, you may want to go back and listen to that as we cover the Phantom Menace, as well as some of our earlier ideas of of how we would structure a rewrite of Star Wars. This episode is going to be covering episode two of Star Wars, which is Attack of the Clones. Part three will be coming out next week, and that will be the conclusion of this series and will include Revenge of the Sith, as well as the culmination of our rewriting Star Wars. So we're glad you could be here. We hope you enjoy. So Attack of the Clones. Yeah, and so this this movie takes place 10 years after The Phantom Menace, which again gives you this buffer zone where like you could have just made Anakin older. You could have made yeah. every, you know what I mean? Like since you have 10 years of built-in time buffer and it doesn't matter that this is 10 years later. It could have been 5 years later, it could have been the next year. No one would have like narratively 10 years doesn't matter that much. And it almost highlights how little the events of the first one really impacted. It's not like yeah, it's, they they jumped off from like oh the events of this happened and then now we're immediately recovering from that. I get what they were kind of going for, which is that like the flapping of a butterfly wing becomes uh, a, a hurricane, you know, on the other side of the world kind of thing, like the butterfly effect. Like you know, hey, the events on this seemingly unimportant backwater world were the opening notes of a galactic civil war that would engulf the entire galaxy in a, the most violent conflict it ever experienced. And lead to the rise of this tyrannical regime, but I don't know if they communicated that that well, especially given that we don't see much of the rest of the galaxy. So to us, the galaxy is basically like Naboo, Tatooine, and Coruscant. So it doesn't, we don't get any sense of Naboo's minusculeness on the scale of the galaxy. It seems important to us from the beginning. So I think it loses a little bit of that like perspective about like, oh, you know, these might seem like localized events, but they had tremendous impact a decade later. Like, we, we don't really get that unless you, like, delve into the lore. Sorry, I was looking up the crawl. Because I remembered that all three of these movies kind of have an absurd opening crawl. And I was trying to just see what the crawl was for this film. I want to say it spells out that there's the Separatist movement led by former Jedi Master Count Dooku, and that Padme is headed to Coruscant for a crucial vote. Right, like th- those are the major points, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think all of these crawls are kind of crazy. I'm, I'm, I just have all three pulled up. I think they get better throughout the three. The first one is really just about like Supreme Chancellors, Trade Federation, uh, blockades, and it, it could kind of just lead you to be like okay, and then and then you finally get into the first scene, and it and it kind of makes sense. But let me just read this one real quick. There's unrest in the Galactic Senate. Several thousand solar systems have declared their intentions to leave the Republic. And this kind of hits at one of the kind of weirder issues in the second film is that it's not really made clear why there's a separatist movement, which I don't think is inherently bad. But if it's so critical, I would love to see them spend just a little bit of time on maybe the, the why that's happening. Well, and like, yeah, it, it makes very little sense because we learn that the Separatist movement is entirely a creation of the dark side, right? Like Darth Sidious is basically using the entire Separatist movement as his pawn to create the strife within the Senate that will make him, grant him emergency powers and make him a dictator, a space dict- space Mussolini, if you will. And they obviously aren't going around being like, hey guys, a Sith Lord showed up. He says it'd be lit if we declared our secession, you know what I mean? So, like, they have to have yeah. something that sounds good, and we never hear what that is. They don't know that they're 
they're going to the quote-unquote bad side. They just know that they're separating for probably, to them, legitimate reasons. Something that I – this is gleaned from like a thousand readings of extended universe novels, which are now no longer canon thanks to Disney. But something that is brought up several times is that the Galactic Senate has a very strict one-planet, one-vote policy. Everyone is equal when they come to the Senate. So whether or not you – your planet might be Corellia or Alderaan, which is, you know, like hugely important political planets with huge militaries. Or you could be Naboo, where, you know, there's, you know, pretty sparse population, pretty peace-loving, like they got a queen, like it's pretty low-key. But everyone gets their senator, and everyone gets to vote on everything. And the large, powerful economic movers of the galaxy, the Trade Federation, the Banking Guild, they are represented in the Senate as well. They have like separate, they have their own voting effectively. So it'd be like if Goldman Sachs had a senator effectively. And there's an undercurrent of the idea that they believe that the galaxy really functions because of them. And so they don't like it that their vote is equal to that of, you know, three Wookiees from Kashyyyk or three Yodas from wherever Yoda comes from. We never see another Yoda until the Mandalorian. But and so it, I've always kind of in my head canon, I guess what you call it, like fanfic, is that like their separation is based on the idea that like we are the ones enabling all economic activity in the galaxy. We should be much more, uh, in a much higher station than just like participating in democracy. And so we're gonna do our own thing where we're free, where our influence matches our station effectively. But that's again, that's that's almost a hundred percent me based on the coalescence of factors that I've read in other sources. But I think that that kind of highlights the major issue that I have with the structure of this, this prequels is that episode two and three both play into what this is about, which is effectively the downfall of the Republic as we knew it in particular with Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader. That's kind of the general story that we're trying to cover here, right? Whether or not Obi-Wan it should be the main character and all that is a different discussion. But The Phantom Menace doesn't really play into any of that, except no. for that it introduces you to the fact that Senator Palpatine is pulling strings and the fact that Anakin is a person, like that he exists. Both yeah. of those could easily be done in the first 15 minutes of what what happens in the events of Episode 2. And I guess you could make the case that like the Trade Federation as an actor is willing to like go against, that there's unrest in the Senate. And in the Galactic Republic, but again, that's you could put that in the crawl, and it'd be almost as well represented as it is by the two-hour runtime of Phantom Menace. Agreed. And I hinted at how Episode 2, the crawl, glosses over the declaration to leave the Republic, the, the Separatist movement. The other thing that it, it glosses over, which I think is really strange, um, and perhaps is more of a miss for the George Lucasy the way he does films, because he's very into the, the action elements. Mm-hmm. It says that the Jedi are overwhelmed, but it never shows us that. In fact, we don't see any Separatist army. We don't see any Separatist battles. We literally have the droid army, which was the, the Trade Federation. We don't see any battle between them, and we've got this clone army that hasn't been produced yet. And so where are they being overwhelmed? Like It almost seems like if you're going to show that, show us an opening scene of a battle that shows the Jedi getting driven back. And then it shows the need for a vote. It'd be, it's a very easy fix. Yeah, just and like, starting off a movie with an action scene is a great, which he does a few times in this, in this 
he does with Revenge of the Sith, like that that'd be a great way to kick off this film. I don't even I don't even know if you need to like if that's not how you want to go. I do think that's a really good approach. If that's not the way you want to go, then you need to show. Okay, so the opening scene of this movie is Padme returning to Coruscant to vote on the the you know the military act of the Republic, effectively like the creation of a Republican army to defend the Republic. Right and. As she lands, there's a bomb placed on board her her ship, and it blows up on the landing pad and almost assassinates her. All you need to do here is insert a scene between this and Obi-Wan and Anakin being assigned to her as bodyguards, where the the Chancellor or someone from the Republic comes to the Jedi and is like, "This this is an act of war. You know, we need you to, you know, respond in kind to this threat. And the Jedi need to be like, that's not our role. Like, we are not an army. We cannot, we don't have the numbers, and we are not an effective fighting force when being used as frontline troops. And so then that leaves, that both solves the problem of we haven't seen the Jedi overwhelmed, and also opens the thing of, like, in the audience's mind of, like, yeah, now that I think about it, the Jedi are not present in large enough numbers, nor are they really frontline soldiers. So who will fill the role of frontline soldiers? And then that leads right. to the clones. Because it, it really does come out of left field, the need for clones. That's really all I'm getting at is the clones, it doesn't show their ne- them being needed. I think the clones are tight. I, I really do. I think that they're cool. And especially if you've ever watched the cartoon Clone Wars, it is maybe one of the best pieces of Star Wars media ever made. It's super fun. It's just the, it's every episode the is just like a big It's probably battle. the best. Let's, let's be honest. Let's stop playing with Kitty Gloods with the original trilogy. Like, it's probably the best. We'll go into the logistics of how the... Yeah, I'll wait. I'll wait till the clone army's created, because I have some thoughts there, but... Yeah, me too. Okay, so, like I said, Amidala's almost assassinated, and the Jedi Council places her under protection of now Jedi Master, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and now his apprentice, uh, much older, 10 years older, Anakin Skywalker. So... They are assigned to protect her, and obviously Anakin and Padme haven't seen each other in a while, and he's like, damn, girl, remember when I was nine and I wanted to bang you? Well, now I'm 19, and I still want to. And she's like, I'm into that for some reason, even though you were a child when I met you, and that makes this relationship really inappropriate and weird. Even as an eight-year-old when I watched her, 10-year-old or whenever this movie came out, I was like, that's weird. Yeah, super inappropriate, super Super not okay. Compromises the entire plan of the Jedi. Like, you can't have... The president can't be sleeping with a Secret Service agent. Like, that, that, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you can't have that dynamic exist within a close protection agent. That's not how that works, so... Yeah, just have, like... Okay, so first of all, there's no real plot need to have Padme be the queen. It could could still be a bodyguard. Like, I just think they wanted to have the cool twist in there. I, I did say in the last episode that I think... It would have been tight if Anakin found out later that the girl he was digging was the queen, but that was also in the context of Anakin is, like, 14 and she's 16. But, dog, if you've ever had, like, everybody growing up, if you've, like, had an older sister's friend or, you know, older cousin's friend or whatever, like, if they are 16 and you are 9 and you meet them or something similar, which is what happens in this film, they are always going to view you as, like, a little brother, a, a literal little toddler. Yeah. You're a toddler like, to them. You yeah. are never a sexual threat in any yeah. way, shape, or form. Exactly. Uh, yeah, this weird dynamic exists between them, and they, the Jedi, thwart a second assassination attempt on Amidala. They use a droid to like laser cut a hole in her sleeping quarters. And they inject some like crazy ass space snakes in there, 
Uh, Anakin jumps in there, like, dramatically, kind of sexually, jumps on the bed and lightsabers the snakes in half. And they chase down the assassin, and she's about to reveal who hired her when she gets hit by this dart in the neck that kills her before she can reveal the identity of who hired her. Which, is that not, like, one of the most, like, lazy assassination attempts it's almost like the austin power scenes where or any of those like bond villain scenes like bro where... you can get that close just like throw a fucking hand grenade in there and it's over. right like, that's what i'm getting at what is the what is the point of the secrecy especially the fact that you use a robot like could you not find a robot that could shoot a laser right at her head yeah it didn't make a ton not... of sense but yeah so the jedi council instructs obi-wan to find the bounty hunter and uh they're like you you hunt down the killer and anakin you're going to escort her back to Naboo and protect her, which the Jedi's ability to like sense things and read minds, which their plot device for that is that the dark side is clouding their visions of the future already. And they like are, so they can't see stuff, but the fact that they cannot sense even like just by like looking at them around each other, that Anakin and Padme are trying to fuck is bizarre and makes this decision very strange, but they go there and they're there for like, I guess like a week and get married which is again strange. Their relationship is bizarre and inappropriate, and it reminds yeah. me of those Ken Burns documentaries where it'll go, it'll show those that we talked about where it shows those couples that are yeah. in the forties, and it'll just be like, "Well, he was real kind to me," and I we met him. I met him outside the the potluck, and uh, he made excellent lemonade. So I married him a week later. <laughs> like, he, made, he made an egg salad that was quite the kicker. And, she was a uh, good woman. She, she had 14 children, so I approve of her continuing to breathe. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, That's what it felt All right. Like. <laughs> As so, did their dialogue. I mean, famously, the dialogue in Anakin. Oh, painful, dude. You know, George Lucas, I've been super hard on him, especially with his dialogue. But, dog, you got to wonder if that dude has ever been in love remotely yeah, or like had a conversation read, with read a, a like romance adjacent film because the the dialogue between anakin and padme the only reason that you would say they have chemistry is that they're both attractive young people that's it yep, the, i mean their is dialogue it. is insanely bad just the i mean the coarse sand shit like that you've always heard of like that's obviously really bad but there's a million i mean just go back and watch any of the lines where they're together they don't smile at each other there's no lovey-dovey they're just the, all it's their right lines, up there with the, like uh, it's right up there with Tom Cruise and what's her face and Jerry Maguire for like least on screen chemistry in any movie ever. You're just like yeah. I don't believe for a second that you like each other, like not even remotely. Yeah, there's so, a line where Anakin says that, and this might be in the next movie, but Anakin says Padme is beautiful, and then she says you're only saying that you only think I'm beautiful because I'm in love, and then he says. I know it's only because I'm in love, but it's all oh. delivered so poorly. And it's like, God, who the fuck what, wrote this? What is like, this? All right. Yeah. It's really bad. So Obi-Wan's searching and he, he, got, he has that dart that killed the assassin. And he takes that to a diner and the fry cook at the diner is, I guess, a weapons expert. And he's like, oh, yeah, this is a Camino dart from Camino. And like, what's a Camino? And he's like, it's a planet that only I know about. And they're very secretive and very scary, and they make crazy darts. And he's like, "Oh, damn! How convenient!" So, so he goes to the he goes to the Jedi Library, and they're like, "Yeah, we got every planet in the war in the whole universe in here." And he's like, "I'm looking for this planet," and they're like, "That's not that's not a planet." And he's like, "No, it definitely is." And so he goes out there in a ship alone to find it. And what do you know? There is a planet. It's called Camino. And on this planet, he finds an army of clones that are being 
grown thousands and thousands of them. And one thing I really hate, and this happens in many sci-fi stories, the scale of things is incorrect. So one of the Kaminoans is like, yeah, the first batch of 100,000 is ready to go. Bro, 100,000 clones would not be capable of taking like a large city on one planet, and they're going to fight a galactic civil war. You would need literally trillions of clones. Yeah. Just like you would need trillions of robots. And they're like, yeah, we found these droid factories on Genosis later. And they're making like one droid at a time on an assembly line. You're like, no, dude, you don't understand. Like, if you're going to fight these giant battles on a thousand planets, planets, not like, you know, on a thousand different places on one planet, but like thousands of planets. We're talking about at least millions of soldiers per planet. For them to even encounter each other. Yeah, I mean, think about the fact that I I think that the United States had around 200,000 troops in Iraq. Yeah. Ish. Dude, I mean, the the largest battles of World War I had a million soldiers on each side. Like, and that's in some place in France. We're talking about entire planets times thousands of planets. Like, yeah, it's very bizarre. But anyway, they're making this this army, and he's surprised that the Kaminoans are like, oh, hey, Master Jedi, we've been expecting you. And he's like, what the fuck? And they're like, yeah, you know, like Jedi Master Sifo Dyas uh, showed up and he uh, put in this order for the Republic. So we've been, you know, working our asses off making this order for the Republic. Obi Wan knows that Sifo Dyas is dead, and he's like, yo, that's very strange. Like, why would someone place this huge order? Because it must have cost a shitload of money. He also finds out that the bounty hunter he's been pursuing, Jango Fett, uh, father of Boba Fett, is the genetic template for all the clones. So that's why all of them sound like they're from New Zealand, which is cool. Why? Okay, can you? Can, I want to stop right here. Maybe this is explained, but in J.J. Abrams, Star Wars, famously one of the main characters is a former stormtrooper, and he's black. Why? Did they explain how that happened? Yeah, the stormtroopers are not clones. They're not the same thing? Only the clone troopers are clones. Oh, they're completely different things. Yes, because eventually... The uh, there's an episode of the Clone Wars about this. The Empire was worried about the clones. They were bred with like genetic engineering and programming that would keep them from committing war crimes and things like that. And so they wiped out all the clone troopers at the end of the Clone Wars and replaced them with conscripts who were much much cheaper, much much easier to train, and could be effectively made to do just about anything in the name of the Empire on threat of death. So it was like both a cost optimization and a yeah war, desire to do war crimes more easily. Uh, Got it. Motivated thing. Did, am I um, not weird though in thinking like I, I what I'm going towards is I almost want to take points off of the movie rendition of like dog you from a movie perspective like people don't watch the Clone Wars like a lot of people don't watch the Clone Wars so like the design of these stormtroopers, the clone troopers, like I, I'm probably not the only person wildly confused. Yeah. I I guess the only thing I would say to that is that we know that the storm, the reason you could easily make a case that it's obvious that the stormtroopers are not clones because they have different voices and things like that. Like they're very clearly not all the same guy. They behave differently. They have different voices. They're different sizes in some instances, like some are slightly taller and slightly shorter than the other ones. So, but yes, certainly if you had like, you weren't paying that, if you were a very casual fan, like, that doesn't make any sense because it's very heavy handedly obvious that like what we're seeing is the creation of what would become the imperial military machine, right? Like the the That's what I took it as, the Republic yeah. starships look like star destroyers. The clone troopers are very much the template by which we create the stormtroopers. They're even called troopers. They're called clone troopers instead of stormtroopers. 
I feel bad for the stormtroopers, dude, because they end up actually getting like way shittier armor, way shittier guns. They're all conscripted from their home planets and like basically told their parents are going to get worked unless they serve the Empire. Like, at least the clones were about it, you know? Like, they were born for this shit. So they were like, you know who would have been down. totally on board with the conscription, the force conscription? Qui Gon Jinn. Oh, definitely, because he's a big supporter of slavery, if, unless you missed the, uh, the our section 20 minutes ago on how Qui Gon Jinn loves slavery. So <laughs> rewind if you'd like to hear more about that. But yeah, so he, he discovers this huge clone army that's going on, and Obi-Wan meets with Jango, and Jango reveals that he works for a man named Tyrannus. And Obi-Wan's like, oh, who the fuck is that? So Obi-Wan deduces that this is, in fact, the bounty hunter that he's seeking, and they have this brief battle out in the rain, and Obi-Wan manages to get a homing beacon on Jango Fett's ship as he leaves, and Jango flees Kamino with his son, who's not really, like, his, like, actual son. It's a it's a clone that was allowed to grow naturally. All the other clones grow from, like, baby to adult inside of a year. This one was That's allowed to grow weird. at the normal rate of a child. Yeah, it's it's wild. And that would actually cause significant issues with the clones later in life. Like, they're really only designed to last, like, 10 to 15 years, and they start aging super rapidly, and then they have, like, all kinds of crazy clone madness and stuff. It's, it's pretty interesting. interesting. This is part of my issue. We're going to see later that basically this army, the existence of this army is revealed to the Republic. They're like, yeah, someone created this army. We don't know who, but we should use it. And go fight the Separatists. And the Republic is just down. It's super weird. Bro, that would be so fucking suspicious, I cannot even describe it to you. Can you imagine if it was, like, on the eve of the Iraq War? And we were like, yeah, but, you know, we're already committed in Afghanistan, and, like, we just don't know. And then some random that worked for the State Department was like, yo, someone built us a whole second United States military that we found. And they're like, oh, bet. Okay, cool. We can just use that for a wreck. Like, no, dude. No one, everyone would be like, who are these people? Who built this? What's their motivation? Are these people loyal to us? How do we trust an entire army of clones that have been programmed and trained by someone else that could all turn on us? We're definitely not putting our entire, like, military hopes behind these guys. Like, that's super sketch. And if you read the, like, the novels and stuff, this entire clone army was financed by the banking guild who... Put the Palpatine used their money to put in this order, like under a fake name, under Jedi Master Sifo-Dyas. He created all this shit, so they are kind of not on the Republic's team. They're definitely, and that's why you know they have Order sixty six programmed into them for the the third movie when Palpatine can like say one word and they all turn on the Jedi. But it's a yeah. very strange decision. That's how they come into possession of this clone army. I don't know, man. I, I don't know why this was the writing decision that was made. It doesn't make a ton of sense. It's a few um, of the really weird decisions. And, and at some point, like I think in this movie, doesn't it, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't Obi-Wan, he sees Django. Is it Django or Boba Fett? Django's the adult that all the clones are based on. Got it. So Django Fett, it shows Django Fett with Count Dooku, who we figure out later is evil, right? Mm-hmm. And then... You know that Jango Fett is in charge of the clone army. So how in the world would he not be able to just that that one person? Our, yeah, you'd think our instantly characters. they'd be like, we're not trusting the clone army. Fuck that. Right. Like it's it's insane. It's it's it, so it goes beyond just like, wow, where did this army come from? It's our main character effectively found out where the army's from and it's not a good place. It'd be well, like if we found out the army's from North Korea. They also we know the Genosians are or not the not the Genosians the uh, the Kaminoans are master cloners like that's their role and 
they make the best clones, and they'll. E- I'll even go so far as to be like, okay, they arm the clones, all right? Let's say they give them their rifles and s- their armor and stuff. When we see this army at the end, it's got, like, never-before-seen artillery, air cover, tanks, heavy weapons. Like, there's an entire military ready to go, like a combined arms force. Was the Republic building everything except soldiers and was just like, man, where are we going to get guys for this? And then suddenly these guys showed up. Like, it doesn't... They don't give us an origin story for, like, the entire Starfleet of deaths, like, Star Destroyers that they roll in with. They have, like... Those big walking tanks that are clearly like precursors to the ATATs. Those yeah. cool like um, I can't remember what they're called, but those like drop ships with like the sliding doors on the side and the, like the bubble cannons that are super cool that yeah. Yoda's in when he's like to the front line, take me. Super cool <laughs> when he's um, like open up all the firepower. Which like yeah. the fact that Yoda ever says that line pisses me off. There is a weird thing in this where they've decided that like, and I think that the idea of like the Jedi's being the generals is cool. Like, I do think that's a cool concept, but I don't know if the way you should have introduced that concept was for Mace Windu to walk up and have a a clone trooper walk up to him and be like, excuse me, General Windu, you're a general now. And him being like, lit, all right, let's go fight then. He's like, bet. Yeah. (laughs) Like, no, I, yeah, if you, you either have to go one of two ways, you have to, like you said, you have to completely lean into the idea that the Jedi are not only, uh, sage religious monks, question mark, that also have general abilities dog that requires teaching like you go to west point to learn how to become an officer like that that shit does not come naturally so it has to be learned and like trained and and also it needs to be constantly brushed up upon you don't just learn that shit well and we we i don't want to get too far into spoilers for the end of the movie but like we see that the jedi are like tactically and strategically fucking dumb they all show up in that arena, and they're like, yo, we're going to fucking fight all these guys solo dolo. They get, like, fit, like half of them get wiped out. Like, they lose, like, half the yeah. Jedi Order in, like, ten minutes to, like, some normal-ass yeah. battle droids in Genosian. They are not tactic. That is a horrible tactical decision. They went into, like, an overwhelmingly outnumbered situation with the wrong, like, they revealed themselves for some reason. They were like, yeah, we're all going to light up our lightsabers together, and you're just going to be scared. And they're like... No, we're not. We're going to send a billion droids at you, and most of you are going to get worked. Like, so it's a very strange decision. They all would have been wiped out. That would have been the end of the Jedi Order had the clones not yeah. showed up. So, yeah. The other thing that I, I said there was two two ways you could do it, right? And mm-hmm. I, I I didn't say my second way. The second way that you could treat the Jedi's and their relationship with the army is you do what you did with the first three original trilogy, which is treat the jedi as these monks that are effectively peacekeepers that they are more there that violence is last resort and that's not the direction they go with this trilogy and it's really weird you might think it's tight and i thought it was tight as a kid but well they wanted big jedi battles that's what they wanted yeah but like yoda specifically is where i kind of draw the line and i'm like okay that's weird because master yoda is this guy who's supposed to be just like total learned individual to the point where he's almost hard to understand from like our human concept to going in there and guns a blazing throughout all throughout episode two and three it's really out of left field watching again watching it as an adult as a writer it's really weird as a kid oh i thought it was tight as hell don't get me wrong i thought it was really especially the the count dooku fight which we'll get to but um, super i I, if, if i had my cake i would say it's cool to have like Mace Windu and stuff be this like you could set him aside as like here are the Jedi 
soldiers who command parts of the army, like they the special operative special forces. forces or yeah, right. But I would say Yoda should be above that. I kind of think he should not be involved in any of these invasion fights. I, yeah, I think like you that. need Yoda to be like kind of. Uh, with Palpatine, like maybe part of the political establishment, and he's like trying to work the political angle, like figure out what's going on, and so we're kind of following him, like unearth this the Darth Sidious piece of things. I also think I don't know why you needed to do the like surprise clone army thing. All you do is when Palpatine gets voted his emergency powers, he's like, "Good news, I had this clone army made." Everyone's like, "Yeah, fuck yeah, dude. See, this is why we elected Palpatine. Like he gets shit done." But the undercurrent's like, dude, he he built a whole army? Like, what was he going to do with that if we didn't give him emergency powers? Like, what's going on here? And so you start to see, like, the tyranny, the like the fascist leanings of Palpatine immediately. I don't yeah. understand what the value was in making the clone army, like, a pop-up surprise for the Republic. Because, again, it makes it so strange that they accept that with no... I mean, at minimum, you'd think the Senate would be like, yeah, we're going to, like form a committee and investigate this shit for like a year before we let the clones anywhere near anything important, right? Given their yeah. origin and like unknown provenance and like who trained them and like it wouldn't take that much questioning of a clone to figure out that like there's a secret password that <laughs> has them go on murder yeah. spree of everyone that's yeah. a Jedi. That's strange. You don't think that the Jedis could like do their mind reading shit and be like, yeah, Egg so 66 clones are un like and again extended universe clones are unnatural and do not have the force they cannot be like jedi mind tricked they can't be controlled by the force you can't sense them in the force yeah that i guess that that's explains. that's why the that's why they're able to ambush the jedi because the jedi could not sense that they were about to murk them do their thing except we see yoda do it so either Yoda's they're about to go young, powerful daddy. or like yeah, yeah they i just break i guess that, that explains rule. why or i guess that hints at how the stormtroopers in episode four he, they get convinced these aren't the droids you're looking for. But they get that 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 happened 20 years before any of this other lore came out. Yeah. Of like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, back to uh, Kamino. They have this battle out in the rain, and Obi-Wan manages to throw a tracking device on Jango's ship. Slave One, iconic Star Wars ship, would eventually be Boba Fett's ship. Very um, dope ship. Super dope. Built it out of Legos. Very tight. Um, and he follows. What didn't you build out of Legos? I have built everything out of Legos. I will admit that. <laughs> uh, he then uh, he follows uh, Django and his son to Geonosis. They have kind of this cool like starship chase scene through an asteroid belt. That's that's pretty lit. And they end up on this planet Geonosis. As soon as he arrives, we're like, okay, what's going to go on here? But then we cut to Anakin is having like these horrible visions of his mother, like in pain, dying, and he decides he's going to go to Tatooine with Padme and save her. So he shows up, he goes to Wada, who's now a very aged space Jew. He doesn't have hey, any gold. Hey, you get it back in the pod racers in my Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he reveals that he sold Shmi to a moisture farmer named Klieg Lars. You know, kind of a happy ending for her. Klieg freed her and then married her, which I've always said the best marriages start with the husband purchasing the wife as a slave, and then uh, she earns her freedom via sex. I think that's... Yeah. Uh, the healthy foundations of a good relationship. You know, I, I guess I'll take a, a, a side to say I, I really crapped on George Lucas for not being able to write good romance between Anakin and Padme, but I must say that this romance is just incredibly well written. Just by uh, knowing that this romance exists, my own marriage feels loveless and empty. 
because I just had to like meet my wife and convince her to marry me. I should have bought her. So all jokes aside, uh, he meets Klieg and Klieg's like, yeah, like your mom was super dope, but she got abducted by Tuscan Raiders like a couple weeks ago. Sand people, a.k.a. the Native Americans of Star Wars. Another crazy racist thing. Yes, absolutely. It's weird. So they've gone through this weird uh, transformation. In the original movies, they're like, they're very much like Native American. And then in modern Star Wars, they've become like Bedouins a little bit, like uh, like Middle Eastern tribesmen. Yeah. It's very strange. Like whatever the unknown other is to our current society, that's who the Tusken Raiders are. Yeah. Um, so he, he they're finds They're going to be Russian mom. in the next film. It, that'd be so great. <laughs> it's just like all of Russian accents. They, they have vodka. like the fur hats or whatever. <laughs> so he sneaks out to this uh, Tuscan campsite and he finds his mom. She's barely alive and she dies in his arms and Anakin goes fucking beast mode. He massacres this entire tribe, including children, which is the first of a couple times we see Anakin Skywalker just kill some kids. He is... A kid killer, for sure. Again, uh, I referenced the last episode of Michael Jordan, fuck them yeah, kids. Just he is in full fuck them kids mode. So he goes to Padme and he says that from now on, he's going to find a way to prevent the deaths of the people that he loves. Which leads to one of my favorite lines in all of Star Wars, which is where, uh, where Palpatine and Anakin are talking. And Palpatine's like, you know, there are techniques by which you can keep someone from dying. And he goes, you can learn these techniques? And then he turns to him and he goes, not from a Jedi. And you're just like, oh, fuck, dude. Which has been memed to death. That has been used so often to talk about other things. Being like, wait, you can take a PS5 to self-checkout and then ring it up as a banana? Can you learn that technique? Not <laughs> from a Jedi. <laughs> so good. Which I, so good. I think that, that, you know, I... One thing we'll get into is I don't think that how Anakin becomes part of the dark side, I don't think how Palpatine introduces him to the dark side is done well. But that line kind of slaps. It's a bit of a slapper. It's an underrated Palpatine in general, I think, does good with what he's given. Like, he's given weak material. Yeah. He is, he is a sinister fucker. Like, he does a good job being very sinister and underhanded the whole time. I dig it. He's like if Martin Shkreli had subtext. Yeah, exactly. He is the Martin Shkreli of the Star Wars universe, given unlimited access to power. Shouts out to Martin Shkreli for getting released this week. Dude, my man's is home. Free to guys till it's backwards. So we cut back now to Geonosis, and Obi-Wan discovers that the Separatists have all gathered, and Count Dooku's there. And they're building this huge droid army. They've those big, cool ring ships that the Trade Federation had in the first movie. They buried them under the ground in Geonosis uh, to hide them from prying eyes. And they're building this giant droid army. But Obi Wan is captured, and Dooku meets him, and he's just like, "Oh, bro, I'm so sorry. This is such a terrible misunderstanding. I'll make sure you're released immediately." And Obi Wan's like, "I definitely know you're fucking evil. I can't believe you're doing this. You're a Jedi." And Dooku's basically straight with him. He's just like, look, dude, like, there's a Sith in charge here. And he's revealed some shit to me that makes me think that we're on the correct side of things now. Like, that there's disorder in the galaxy. The only way to prevent, you know, slaughter and starvation and stuff is to, like, take control. And, you know, why don't you join with us? Which, I don't know if that's Dooku being, like, duplicitous or if he really believes that. Because, like, the rule of two is pretty clear, like, Obi-Wan cannot join them like that that's definitely against the rules or 
if Dooku planned to eventually kill Sidious, and then he would be the the Dark Lord of the Sith, and Obi Wan would be uh, the Apprentice. Some interesting theories uh, around there, but yeah, he's basically like, "Sorry, bro, probably not gonna be able to get you released anytime soon, but I'll do my best." And like chuckles and walks out. Obi Wan does manage to escape. He transmits all his findings to the uh, Jedi Council. He's he's like, yo, like Darth Sidious is like, you know, in charge of this whole thing. There is a Dark Lord of the Sith in charge. This is super fucked up. And it's implied here that Sidious not only... This is the first time we figure out that Sidious isn't just controlling the Separatists, but it's revealed to the Jedi that he has vast swaths of the Galactic Senate under his thumb, which is obviously like way more scary for the Jedi because they feel it's... This is kind of where they make the realization that they were 100% right about being blinded in the Force. Like, they can't sense things like they once did. The dark side has been allowed to, like, fester and, like, cloud their sight uh, around them. And so they're effectively operating blind. So Dooku basically says that if Qui-Gon was here, he would have joined with me. And that really pisses Obi-Wan off, right? Because Obi-Wan's his boy. Dooku used to be Qui-Gon's master. So this is like, you know, the master's master meeting the the now Jedi master Obi-Wan Kenobi. Kind of a cool dynamic. They didn't do anything with it, but could have been cool. I liked what they were setting up. They just took it nowhere. And then this is where we see that we go back to Coruscant, and this is where Jar Jar Binks becomes the most single impactful character in the entire multi-millennia history of the galaxy of Star Wars. Fucking Jar Jar Binks is now the senator for Naboo, which, talk about just failing upwards, bro. This dude was exiled from the Gungans, like, walking around the woods as an actual homeless person. A homeless, poop-stepping nobody. His only accomplishment, really, was getting pushed out of the way of a tank by the Jedi, and he has now failed upward from general in the Gungan army, war hero, to now he's the entire planet of Naboo's representative in the Galactic Senate. How did he get elected? Because Amidala left, and so that someone had to stand in, and she she picked Jar Jar to That's be nice. her stand-in. And so he's like, yeah, this is lit. And Chancellor Palpatine's like, hey, bro, Naboo boys, Naboo gang, let's let's have a fireside chat. And he's like, does the most like heavy-handed shit. He's like, man, I so wish I could fix this whole civil war thing. If only I had emergency powers, you know, but only a super big badass with a giant penis and really, that's really handsome would vote for me to have emergency powers. <laughs> and Jar Jar Binks is like, mm-hmm, and then goes into the fucking Senate and is like, we should totally give him emergency powers. And that Jamaican alien asshole. Just dude, this so, motherfucker, dude. And so conveniently so, easy to manipulate. He He gets totally fucking worked. He definitely sent Jar Jar Binks is definitely sending like half of Naboo's treasury to like a Nigerian prince on another planet because he is easily fucking swayed. How many so, NFTs yeah, does Jar Jar Binks oh, have? Has dude, he put his life savings? Day into? one board ape yacht club, but a fake board ape, not even a real board ape. He got taken by a fishing scam. That, so that guy went to Fire Festival for damn sure, setting some shit. VIP Fire Festival. He got a cabana at Fire Festival. So yeah, Chancellor Palpatine is granted emergency powers. He's effectively a dictator, and of course he does the classic. What what do all dictators say? Like, bro. As soon as this shit's done, I'll give it right back. You know, like, this is totally temporary. I pretty pinky promise, you know. But first things first, I'm going to build an army of the Republic. And that's when he's like, oh, weird. This clone army's here. I guess we'll just use this one. Back on Genosis, with this whole droid army thing going down, obviously things have gotten pretty shitty. And Anakin and Padme are now heading to Genosis to rescue Obi-Wan. How do they find that he needs to be rescued? He 
cannot get the message all the way to Coruscant, so he relays it off of them, their ship, which is closer to Coruscant, and so they get to hear the message, too, on its way to Coruscant. Got it. As soon as Anakin gets there, his bitch-ass loses his lightsaber, and they get captured by Jango Fett and a bunch of droids. Dooku immediately sentences all three of them to death, and they're put in this, like, gladiator arena, and they're gonna be, like, torn to shreds by, like, a variety of fun CGI creatures for the enjoyment of the Genosian crowd. Um, totally unnecessary. I mean, kind of tight scene, but like completely unnecessary. I'm the convinced plot. the entire thing was done so that Natalie Portman could be in like skin tight white clothing and then have some of that clothing torn off by a large animal so that she would be like bare midriff, yeah. looking looking sweaty. So they're all like right about to die. And then suddenly Mace Windu walks out on the platforms like, what's up, Dooku? He's like, ha, huh, Master Jedi, like you, this was a very bad plan you to come here alone. And he's like, not alone. And suddenly in a ring around the arena, all these Jedi lightsabers light up. There's like 40 or 50 Jedi. They all jump into the arena. They start fighting and they basically get fucking worked. They kill a lot of droids, but like the the Separatists don't give a shit. Like, they'll lose as many droids as they need to. Killing one Jedi is worth, like, a million droids to them. So they are absolutely right. winning this encounter. After a few minutes, the Jedi are in, like, a tight back-to-back circle in the center of the arena, and they're all about to get murked. And then suddenly... Oh, also during this battle, Mace Windu cuts Jango Fett's head off, which would lead to the, uh, you know, Boba Fett picking up his deceased father's head in his helmet and vowing revenge against the Jedi. And this is, of course, when Yoda flies in with the with the entire battalion of clone troopers what then ensues is this giant battle and as a kid i thought this was the sickest thing i'd ever seen because it was like the largest first large scale sci-fi cgi battle i'd ever seen they have this huge fucking fight the clones uh eventually overwhelm uh the droid army but what i will say is from a i have watched a three-hour video that breaks down the battle of geonosis from a strategic standpoint and this is actually kind of a pyrrhic victory for the republic Yes, they do rescue the Jedi, and yes, they do win this encounter, but the clones are, like, pretty much shown to be basically, like, a one-to-one match for the droids, and it's way easier to make droids, and the the Trade Federation, having been fully ambushed, zero element of surprise, got totally, like, sucker-punched, and still managed to get away with most of their capital ships, most of their droid army, and all their leadership, like, probably felt like they got away with it. This is kind of their, um... They're Dunkirk, you know, like they were like, yeah, yeah, like not not great, but like all things considered, I count this one as a dub for us. This um, is their, uh, this is their uh, let me think of a I just watched the Ben Franklin Ken Burns. So let me give me. A oh, second. I need to watch that shit so bad, dude. I, lo- I, I read the I mean, it's, I read, it, it, it's like the Battle of Concord. It's yeah. Like, yeah. yeah very you beat good us, but not really. Yeah, and like, I, I, the, and and then what happens after that means we effectively won that battle in hindsight. Yeah, I need to watch that dude because I've read the doc or the, I've read the biography on Ben Franklin by Homeboy a couple times. Who's that one biographer that does all the slapper biographies? He did like Steve was, Jobs and yeah, I mean, Walter yeah. Isaacson. Walter Isaacson. I literally um, thought you were gonna say there was a killing Ben Franklin. That's literally a thought because everybody loves the Bill O'Reilly killing whatever <sighs> novels. Man, I, I, you're not I read I read guy, this but. thing the other day that. At MSNBC and at Fox News, there's a storage room that multiple people have seen that's just stacked to the ceiling with box with boxes of books written by their anchors, like either the the Fox anchors, like Bill and like Hannity and shit, and then like 
Rachel Maddow's shitty book, you know, like all those people's books. And it's because you only really need to sell like 2000 books the first week to be the number one New York Times bestseller. And then you get to print it on everything forever. And so like every one of their publishing houses just sets aside a budget and buys those books and stashes them in a closet somewhere. And it's like, yep, New York Times number one bestseller, Rachel Maddow or Bill O'Reilly. Like, Yeah, I mean, this is a writing podcast that I guess we could throw out there that that is a thing. There is a there is a trick of the trade to getting on the best-selling list, but there's another, there's a separate trick of the trade to being on the like New York Times bestseller. But I, dude, I have people that have sworn that the killing, I don't even call them the killing series, but like, yeah, I don't know I've why all of them Bill, like killing. Yeah. And it's always somebody cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. So yeah, Ben Franklin, Ken Burns, like every Ken Burns slappity slapper. I can't sure. wait. I'm super going to watch that. So yeah. So then uh, the culmination of this battle is that Dooku's like escaping Obi-Wan and Anakin chase after him. They get to this, like, spaceport where Dooku's going to get on a ship and flee. And obviously, if the whole Trade Federation leadership escapes, the droid army escapes, and Dooku escapes, like, they won nothing by sacrificing all these clone troopers. Including so they, Mace Windu, right? No, he's not. Never mind. He's Correct. not dead yet, no. But a lot of Jedi died. Like, 20 or 30 Jedi died. So, they, like, corner him, and Dooku... Uh, I wish, dude, there's so much stuff about this story that is cool information they just didn't put in this movie. So, Count Dooku is considered one of, if not the greatest lightsaber duelists in the galaxy. His entire, most, most Jedi learn a different, there are different styles. So, like, there's style one, style two, style three, style four. And these styles are designed to do different things. So many of them are designed for, like, defending a group of innocent people behind you or eliminating a threat that has a blaster or things like that. And it all depends on, like, how you hold the saber, like, how heavy the swings are, like, all that kind of stuff. Dooku invented his own lightsaber. That's why he has the cool handle and his own lightsaber style called Fifth Style that combines several elements of the other styles that's specifically designed to defeat other lightsaber styles. So it's designed specifically to duel other people with lightsabers, which most Jedi do not practice because they rarely fight another person with a lightsaber. So this is like this incredibly deadly encounter with a highly skilled enemy. And we don't get any of that context unless you like read supplemental material, which sucks because I think it adds like a cool dynamic to the whole thing. It does. Um, It does. And that almost makes me dog. I mean, we have talked about in this, in this series about how, one of the biggest misses in this entire series is how there's not a profound antagonist. There's not a there's not a good protagonist. There's also not a good antagonist. And if they had just revealed that, whether it's Dooku being the made bad guy over the last three, or maybe they put that same sort of background onto Darth uh, Maul, Darth Maul, yeah, and make him fuck the, yeah. I mean, gosh, like that that is a that is the kind of background that I feel like the antagonists in this film are missing. Because, yeah, yeah. Do- Dooku just feels like a passing thing in this series. Absolutely. And he could have been easily a... If they had fleshed out that whole, like, hey, the galaxy needs order. Like, I've seen horrible things in my time as this aged Jedi Master, and that galaxy needs order, and that's why, like, I'm siding with this. Like, you could have made him kind of this, like, morally ambiguous anti-hero. enemy. Yeah. Who, yeah, an anti-hero who's also this incredibly skilled, like... In the supplemental material, like, Dooku is the saber 
trainer at the academy. So every good Jedi master who's good at lightsabers learns from Dooku. Like Qui-Gon learned from Dooku. Obi-Wan learned from Dooku. Like the only swordsman considered better in the galaxy is Master Yoda. And so that leads to this like, you're like, oh shit, because he kicks their ass kind of. Like Dooku beats the shit out of Anakin and Obi-Wan pretty easily. And so we're like, damn, I guess his like fifth style is just too good. Like he's, he's just too good a swordsman. And then, but we don't know that, so we, no, we don't, we don't know that. We don't exactly. Know. So we're um, just like, oh, this guy's pretty good, I guess. Yeah, which sucks. for an old man, he he kind of he's pretty good. But then you hear this, tick, 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 and the camera turns, and we see a tiny shadow with a cane coming down the corridor, and in comes decrepit Master Yoda, and he pulls his cloak aside, and there's a tiny little adorable lightsaber on his belt, and he pulls it to his hand with the force and ignites it, and you're and the the crowd goes fucking wild. And him and Dooku begin to have this this duel, and Yoda is, like, full air mode the whole time, dude. He's just, like, flipping off walls. He's doing wall grabs. He's, like, picking up objects and throwing them at him. It's super tight. I loved it as a kid. Although, it should have been a one-time thing. They did it again in the, in the yeah. third movie, and I was, like, That's cheap. That's my big problem. Way cheap. Should have done it one time. Should have been the only time we see him raise a fist. Should have happened in episode three. You gotta, yeah, you gotta rearrange the plots where that happens in the last 30 minutes of Revenge of the Sith. And have that be the culmination of the film, along with, obviously, what happens with Anakin. And uh, while we're on this topic, I gotta say that Yoda fighting Count Dooku, is that not one of the most aesthetically pleasing fights in all of Star Wars? Yes. Is that not one of the best pieces of fan service in Star Wars, let alone any major sort of series? Yes, it absolutely is. Was it set up from a character perspective or a plot perspective or an X's and O's perspective as far as like where Yoda's supposed to be in these time and events? It absolutely wasn't. It makes zero sense from a writing perspective to have that scene. And they just did, like I said, like I had to give you the background on this, on Dooku, which Dooku is a cool character. They just decided to not have him be. And the version of Dooku that we get in the movie is so hollow and two-dimensional that he might as well not been there. Like I was just, and... The fact that he kicks the shit out of Obi-Wan and Anakin and then survives a duel with Yoda and escapes makes it be like this dude's power level is way, you know, disconnected from him, his weight as a character. It doesn't make any sense that he is this capable given what we know about him. So it's all very strange. He ends up cutting yeah. Anakin's arm off and then he distracts Yoda by like pulling this giant like piece of metal off the wall. He's going to crush Obi-Wan and Anakin. And so Yoda has to choose between like going after Dooku or saving them. Of course, Yoda, like, you know, holsters the saber and saves them with the force. And Dooku runs onto his ship and escapes. He gets back to Coruscant where he finds Darth Sidious and he's like, yo, scope what the Genosians built me. And he shows him the plans for the motherfucking Death Star. And that's and that's when uh, Darth Sidious addresses him by his Sith name, which is Darth Tyrannus. So the council is super disturbed the jedi council is like holy shit like this dude dooku said that a sith lord controls the senate this is really bad and they also acknowledge that like this is the beginning of the clone wars which this was a cool moment in the star wars canon because we had heard about the clone wars spoken about as if they were world war ii in the star wars original series like oh back during the clone wars or like before the clone wars or like this is a weapon from the clone wars so They were spoken about with this gravity, like this was the great conflict of our time. Very similar to like, I think when, you know, people in the 1970s or 1980s would have talked about 
you know, World War II, like the, the war to end all wars as far as scale goes. And now we know we're actually going to get to see it. So we see Anakin get his robotic hand, and we see him join Padme uh, for his little marriage, which is only uh, seen by C-3PO, R2-D2, uh, and they get married, and that is the end of Attack of the Clones. So It was like your COVID wedding, dude. It was it, dude, it really was. Dead ass. All the, the only people that were there in person were robots. My Roomba, and that's kind of it. What about your dog? The dog that barks in the background of every one of our <laughs> yeah, episodes. Yeah, absolutely. He, he was stunting over there somewhere. What's your rating for this film? What do you give this on a on a scale, I guess? Yeah, man, this this movie is maybe... I, I, I will say, I think it's the weakest Star Wars movie of the classic six, the prequels and the mm. original trilogy. Um, I think because the reason I, I'm so hard on it is because it had so many things that I as a fan wanted to see, like in the years between Return of the Jedi and the new trilogy or in the prequel trilogy coming out, if you'd asked me having read all these like Star Wars comic books and played Star Wars video games and read Star Wars novels, like what events do you want to see on the big screen? I would have been like, oh man, like Emperor Palpatine working his way, you know, taking down the old Republic and the rise of the Galactic Empire and the Jedi like falling from grace and like in a war, like the Jedi in large numbers in large scale combat and the clone wars, this like defining conflict that decided the fate of the entire galaxy. Like all those things are these like huge magnified events in the star Wars canon that I wanted to see so badly. And so this movie has a bunch of those, but it's handled so ham-fistedly and so poorly that it's, I, I kind of am harder on it than I am on The Phantom Menace, which had like, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect out of The Phantom Menace. It's, you know, totally clean slate. There are no events in that that I was like expecting to see. So The Phantom Menace was, was probably shittier in some ways, but like, because I had such high hopes for the events depicted in The Clone Wars, I think I... I dislike attack of the clones the most and have the most like disdain for it so i think it's it's my least favorite that's totally understandable i think that the phantom menace is a worse film yeah especially in this in a more standalone context agreed as i said earlier if fan if you did not know what star wars was or if star wars wasn't a thing and you tri- and you just were watching it cold turkey the fan i i probably would have turned off the phantom menace after like 20 minutes and just been like yeah, it sucks ass. What do you want me to say? Like, it's on par with, uh, is it, which one, which one's a slapper and which one sucks? Cloud Atlas or Jupiter Ascending? I forget. Cloud which Atlas, I think. That's the one with like, Tom Hanks, and like, he plays like a different character in 10 different timelines. That's a slapper? I, I love that movie. It's like one okay. of my top 10 favorite movies. Jupiter Ascending is the, the one that came out around the same time that sucks ass, right? Yeah, yeah I hate that movie. <laughs> okay, so Jupiter, yeah, it's it's kind of like Jupiter Ascending where you could turn it off in 20 minutes is what yeah, I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, and I, I do agree with you where, you know, Phantom Menace is a a, a terrible sort of standalone story um, that plays almost no bearing to the, the trilogy and what it should become. But I would say this film is it has more potential and falls yeah. flatter. Agreed. Um, it should not have killed uh, Darth Maul. I think yep. a, a, a different way you could do that is have some version where Count Dooku is maybe the more of the bad guy in episode one. Whatever it is, you cannot just... It's the same problem that I have with the downfall of Anakin. You can't do that in one film. Yep. 
Agreed. You can't have Darth Maul be just a one film villain. You can't have Count Dooku just be a one film. Dude, villain. give me Dooku have... through the whole prequel trilogy. Make him this like tragic anti-hero who, through the trauma of war, like one of the Jedi's brightest stars, most like accomplished masters, was turned to the dark side as like a you know showing the path that Anakin will, and Anakin's fighting against that very person. With the irony being that we know he will eventually follow that same path, but in an understandable way. So we're suddenly like grappling with like, was Dooku right about what he's saying? Like that is so much more engaging. Give us Dooku's backstory so that like when he fights someone, it means something. Just the knowledge that he's been the Jedi Master for like half these Jedis that he's fighting makes it so much more intense. Like the fact that he's Qui-Gon's master is mentioned almost offhandedly. And that should have been this like great emotionally gripping thing. Like obviously Obi-Wan Kenobi would have been like very familiar with Dooku being that Qui-Gon was his master and he was Qui-Gon's master. This would have been like his, his grand big in the fraternity, right? Like someone that he's like intimately familiar with in a very familiar way. And instead, he just kind of walks, and he's just like, oh, oh, yes, Obi-Wan Kenobi, I know who you are, yeah. you're the Jedi guy, cool, cool. Like, Yeah, I, th- I think if I were to redo kind of the character web here, I would say, first of all, I think Qui-Gon Jinn, you don't even need to have him. Not necessary to the plot. I love I love nieces, you know, I'm a nieces guy. Of but course. You never want to nix nieces from a plot. But He has a very particular set of skills. Yeah, I think you take this kind of core group of characters in terms of, like, the Jedi. You take Anakin, Obi-Wan, Darth Maul, Count Dooku, and that is your core four. Up until, like, from the very beginning of the first film, you introduce all four of them in the first 30 minutes. And then they're in the entire trilogy up until the last 30 minutes. So you just get, you and have just some get way. rid of the get rid of the Sith rule of two. Like, just throw that out of the canon. Yeah. And that yeah. way, you can have Maul and Dooku both under Darth Sidious, and you're you're good. Yeah, that that or or you decide between the two. I said Maul is better, but dude, just having uh, from the background knowledge you gave me with Dooku, I think Dooku could have been easily been the best villain. Yeah, like, you could have done either a one lot of those with guys. That. You could have done a lot with either one of them. And actually, the the stuff that they've written about Darth Maul after he after we see him quote unquote die in episode one is actually super cool and engaging. He becomes like this super big badass with robot legs. Um, so it's just a shame they wasted that character. What's funny is I I read um oh help me out here. You might know this. There's a so I think we maybe brushed on this at the beginning, but there's a number of YouTube videos that do a a true rewrite where yeah, they it's just, awesome. I've watched a bunch. We're of not, we're great. not really doing a rewrite. We're just doing like, we're talking about what we don't like about it and kind of going through what yeah. we would change about it. And maybe we'll touch on that at the end, but, um, there's one by, I am totally blanking on the name, but I used to know it. Um, it's the one way. And if, and I'll add it to the show notes if I forget it, but it's, uh, it's a guy that sits in front of a green screen. You see him talking as he, and he has his own caricatures. He has his own yeah, drawings yeah. of the, he, br- he brought that up as if his own idea. What's his face? Darth Maul would show up with with robot legs. Um, Interesting. Let me f- yeah, no. Let me in find the, let me find in the, the comics and novels. Darth Maul is eventually pulls himself out of that pit, and Darth Maul's mother is one of these dark side witches from a crazy dark side planet that used to be the homeworld of the Sith. He manages to get back there, and they give him like some robot spider legs that are pretty badass, and he declares like a a fatwa like a lifelong revenge war against both Sidious for abandoning him and replacing him with Dooku and the Jedi and he becomes a big thorn in the New Republic side 
later down the road when like Luke and Leia and shit are in charge. It's cool. It's belated media. Okay. I, yeah, wanted, yeah. To, I wanted to give credit. Uh, the video's this video's ten years old. Each video has like four million views. So this is not original content. In Dude, terms people of, like, were people. These used to be like when when I first saw that like on YouTube, someone was like, "I rewrote the entire Star Wars movie." I was like, "Bro, that is the coolest idea I've ever heard of in my life." <laughs> like we were just weren't yeah. used to like really high quality user generated content yet. Like the only places media happened was on TV. So yeah. I was just like, "Holy shit, someone did this." Yeah, so he, uh, that bladed, you know, it's funny because I actually watched this video. It's 10 years old. I probably watched it five years ago, maybe, maybe more, maybe eight years yeah. ago. I forget. But I definitely watched it now. In college, I, I, like, I went back sure. and watched it as a writer and I still enjoyed it, but I found slight holes in it yeah. that, I, that yeah. I didn't notice. I thought it was perfect when I first watched it, but then I watched it again and I was like, that doesn't really make sense. But, but anyways, it's probably the best of the rewrites that I've seen anyways. Yeah. So belated media. And that's it for episode two of our rewriting the Star Wars prequel series. Be sure to tune in next week for our third episode where we will be going over episode three, Revenge of the Sith. This is Novel Discourse. I'm Sam. We'll see you next time. Peace.